When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For success in battle, you need a few basic things. You need the right strategy, appropriate fire support, planning and communication, and troops who are resilient and trained. Unfortunately, in 1917, near the village of Bulcourt in northern France, the only one of these things that was shown was resilient and trained troops. The battles of Bulcourt are often used as an example of how not to conduct a battle. Thrown into a fight of questionable importance, Australian troops faced a strong defensive position with no artillery barrage to precede the attack. Instead, a new and untried weapon was expected to lead the way, the tank. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Hey everyone, welcome back. So in 1917, after stubbornly resisting all attempts by Allied forces to seize ground since 1915, the German army pulled back anywhere up to 10 miles across a broad front. During 1916, the Germans had taken a battering. They opened the year by launching an offensive which became the horrific Battle of Verdun. After suffering over 400,000 casualties, they then spent the second half of the year fighting off the British offensive on the Somme, losing a further half million men. Fortunately, from a German perspective, they had leaders of foresight and over the winter of 1916-17 they commenced construction of the Hindenburg Line. The Hindenburg Line stretched from Arras to Lefau, a distance of about 90 miles or 150 kilometres. It consisted of reinforced concrete pillboxes, impervious to all but a direct hit from artillery, trenches with deep bunkers, again made from reinforced concrete, and fields of barbed wire hundreds of feet deep. Not only was it a strong defensive position, but it also shortened the front line considerably, meaning fewer troops were needed to be maintained in the front line, thus negating at least some of the substantial troop losses of 1916. It also had the added advantage of giving the Germans some breathing space before the inevitable opening of the spring offensive season. Any plans which the Allied armies had begun to devise would have to be replanned, kind of like a prizefighter aiming a massive haymaker at a place where his opponent used to be. The Germans began their staged withdrawal in early 1917, and by early March they were all nicely tucked up in their new digs, and the British Army now had an even more formidable obstacle than they had faced on the first day of the Somme in July 1916. The generals would have to blow out the cobwebs and come up with some new ideas if they were to avoid another bloodbath. At this stage of the war, four out of the five Australian divisions were under the command of General Sir Hubert Gough of the British Fifth Army. You could say a lot of things about Sir Hubert, none of them particularly flattering. Many of the British Great War generals have been unfairly portrayed over the years as donkeys leading the lions. But Gough pretty much encapsulated the character of the British general of the era. Pompous, unimaginative, not overly concerned with the condition of his troops. But he was known as a thruster, i.e. no matter what, he was always keen to send men forward into the attack. This made him one of General Douglas Haig's favourites, Haig being a thruster himself. 
The French general, Robert Neville, was planning to launch an offensive in the south and requested his British counterparts to attack in the north to tie down German units in that area. Always keen to get stuck in, a series of limited attacks was planned. Gough and his 5th Army, including the Australians, would attack the Hindenburg Line just to the south of Bullcourt. It was to be a short, sharp battle with a limited objective, simply to take and hold a section of the German line. Only, they wouldn't go in with the by now standard approach of heavy artillery bombardment preceding the advance. Nope, they would surprise the Germans with the first massed use of tanks. Now I know I said Goff was unimaginative, so it would seem to be contradictory to say that he championed the idea of using tanks to cut through the wire and deliver direct armoured support to the advancing troops. But it's one thing to have imagination, quite another to enthusiastically base the success of your entire attack on equipment which had yet to prove itself in any major capacity. Some tanks had been used in the later stages of the Somme, but not en masse, and not as a substitute for a sustained bombardment. The tanks which Goff had available were the Mark I and II types. Mark I tanks had a crew of eight and came in two main variants, the male and the female. The males were armed with two six-pounder guns and three 303 Hotchkiss machine guns. And of course, because they were males, they also had a better sense of direction and could reverse park but were less likely to follow instructions than their female variant. Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Anyway, the females were armed with four Vickers machine guns and one Hotchkiss gun. The Mark II included some minor improvements. However, it was intended they would mostly be used for training. The much improved Mark IV and V tanks were not available at the time of Bull Corps, and so, despite being known to be inefficient and unreliable, the Mark II were allocated to the attack alongside the Mark Is. Both tanks had a plethora of issues, which should have at least given Goff a bit of concern. They struggled to maintain a walking pace, meaning that if the infantry was to go in behind them, the pace of the advance would be painfully slow. It was also initially believed that the tanks would be impervious to rifle and machine gun fire, and while this may have been the case in 1916, their early deployment on the field alerted the Germans to their existence. In typical German fashion, they set to and came up with a solution, the armour-piercing round. As the round pierced the shell of the tank, it would also take splinters of steel along with it, turning the inside of the tank into a death trap. And, as if all this wasn't enough, merely being inside a tank, even under optimal conditions, was a nightmare. Poor ventilation meant that before long, the interior would be filled with poisonous carbon monoxide. It was not unheard of for entire crews to pass out inside the tank, or shortly after exiting into clean air. With the proximity of the engine, the operating temperature of the interior was up to 50 degrees Celsius. Personally, I'd reckon I'd prefer to take my chances on the outside. I'll take you now to 9th of April 1917, and I'll take you through the events leading up to, and including, the First Battle of Bullcourt, as seen through the eyes of the 4th Australian Infantry Brigade. This account is taken from the official records of the brigade, and will start with the original orders issued for the attack, and then the official report submitted by the commanding officer, the 13th Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel James Durant. This account provides a more immediate insight to events from those who were there, rather than that provided in the official history. The downside is that it can only state what happened in that one narrow area in which this battalion operated, devoid of any context of the wider battle. However, I think it's still worth quoting from. To view the full document, I strongly encourage you to hit up the Australian War Memorial website at awm.gov.au and search the document number awm 2018 it's a fascinating document with sketches of the battle plan, proposed timings and unit objectives. It also shows all the extraneous considerations which go into a battle plan in 1917, 
right down to who is not taking part. Fascinating. But anyway, on with the show. I shall exclude the details of the barrage timings, etc., but here is the battle order. 1. On a date to be notified hereafter, the enemy will be driven from the Hindenburg line. 2. The objectives of the 4th and 12th Infantry Brigades are as shown on the attached sketch map. 3. Gives the barrage times, which is interesting because, as we know, there was no real bombardment. 4. The 16th, 15th and 14th Battalions, in that order from the right, each with four companies in line distributed in depth with four waves will capture the first and second objectives allocated to the 4th Australian Infantry Brigade. 5. The 52nd and 13th Battalions will capture the third objective. This, however, is dependent on the circumstances of which the amount of resistance encountered in securing the first and second objectives will be the main governing factor. 6. Units will be formed up on the jumping-off line indicated by tape quarter of an hour before zero, which will be communicated later. 7. One section of tanks, two on either flank of the brigade, will cooperate. COs are responsible that all ranks are familiar with the signals to be used when working with tanks. 8. OC, 4th Machine Gun Company, will allot four guns to 16th Battalion, two to 15th Battalion, four to the 14th Battalion, four to the 13th Battalion, keeping two in reserve. OC, the 4th Light Trench Mortar Battery, will allot two Stokes guns each to the 16th and 14th Battalions, keeping two in reserve. The 1st and 2nd Divisional Machine Gun Companies are allotted to the 4th Infantry Brigade for the protection of the right flank. A sketch showing arcs of fire of each group of guns is attached. At XAM on X date, instant flares will be lit by units in their advanced line and also any forward posts. Advanced Brigade Headquarters will be established at OS Central when the second objective is secured. Watches will be synchronised two hours before zero. And that, my dear listeners, is how thousands of men are sent off to their fate. The date of the attack was set for 10th of April, and so during the night of the 9th, the troops went forward to their advanced positions. All were aware that at some stage the tanks would come forward to join them, and so all ears were strained in the early hours waiting for the low rumble of the engines. Nothing. Maybe they're leaving it to the last minute to roll up. Still nothing. Lieutenant Colonel Durant put it rather succinctly in his operation report. On the morning of the 10th, the battalion was in readiness to attack, but owing to the tanks being late, this attack was cancelled. Hardly an auspicious start for the tankies. Durant states that no written orders were given. However, several conferences were undertaken with battalion and company commanders, and it was decided that the battle plan as outlined in the initial orders quoted previously, would be used the following night. By 3.35am on the 11th of April, all was in place with Durant's troops occupying a railway cutting. Durant noted in his report, quote, At 4.45am, punctually, A and B companies moved out, followed later by C and D companies at a distance of 200 yards. As soon as they left the cutting, losses from shell fire commenced. When about 600 yards from the first objective, the battalion came under heavy machine gun fire, which became more intense at the first wire, and officers and men fell fast. The 16th Battalion had then taken the first objective, but was seen to be in very great difficulties at the second objective, the wire in front of which was uncut, and it was only too evident that the 16th Battalion had suffered enormous losses from machine gun fire. There was a tank in the wire with a German machine gun only 10 yards from it, firing heavily on our men. This gun was put out of action by our leading company, A. 
The 13th Battalion pressed on and with the 16th took the second objective, mainly through bombing up the communication trench. They soon established contact with the 14th on their left. End quote. So a couple of things to note at this point. Almost immediately, the advancing troops came under machine gun fire. This obviously meant that they were exposed in full view of an enemy who was waiting for them. The command decision to not proceed the attack with an artillery barrage was having immediate disastrous effects. The defenders' positions were untouched, with the men in place and with no smoke and dust to obscure their view. Another thing to note is that there is only one mention of the tanks, which were supposed to be the Wonder Machines, which would neutralise enemy machine gun positions and cut the wire. Ironically, the tank in question was hung up on the wire a short distance from a machine gun and able to provide no assistance to the troops under fire from that gun. The tanks were a near-complete failure across the entire battlefront. But by far the most important thing to take away from this is despite everything that was against them, despite the near total lack of support, despite largely intact defences, despite uncut wire, they actually did it. They achieved their objectives. They had seized a section of the Hindenburg line, but it had cost them dearly and it wasn't over yet. Durant reported, quote, The machine gun fire rendered visual signalling impossible, and the open ground swept by machine gun fire was almost certain death to runners, so no messages were coming into the battalion headquarters. End quote. Here we can see one of the major problems which accompanied any attack in the Great War. Communication with frontline troops. Durant goes on to say he didn't receive any messages from his forward troops until 9am, about two hours after they had seized the position. By that stage, the situation had changed. Quote Durant again. About 7.20am, a large amount of enemy movement was seen at Rhinecourt. Captain Murray sent up SOS flares for an artillery barrage, but none was forthcoming. At about 7.30am, the Germans counterattacked by bombing down a communication trench from Rhinecourt. This was beaten off, and a combined party of 13th and 16th bombers beat the enemy back from this trench to within 100 yards of Rhinecourt, putting in a block. At the same time, the enemy counterattacked our right in the second objective with bombs but were beaten off, suffering heavy loss. At 9am, a battalion of the enemy in close formation moved from Quiant to the north of Rhinecourt, was dispersed by our machine gun fire, suffering heavy loss. From then until 10.45am, our men were reorganising and consolidating, during which time small bombing attacks by the Germans on our left were beaten off. All the bombs were collected and dumps made near each bombing block. Captain Murray went along the whole position and reports that the 4th Brigade held 900 yards of the Hindenburg Line. He commenced the organisation of the entire brigade position. End quote. It's important to keep in mind that this isn't happening in isolation. Bullcourt was part of the overall Arras offensive. As far as those troops in the front line are concerned, if they can just hold on long enough, then the British attacks on their flanks will secure the entire section of the front and provide some relief. German counterattacks are being beaten off in heavy fighting and the Australians are attempting to establish their new forward line. But no reinforcements are coming, no resupply has reached them. They are hoarding captured German bombs, constructing obstacles at each end of the captured trench and desperate but determined to hang on. At 10.45am, heavy bomb attacks by the Germans were started from the right and left of both objectives. Also down the communication trench from Rhinecourt, and a communication trench running north and south on the west of Rhinecourt, six attacks in all. These attacks were very severe, and our bombs were quickly exhausted, and our men pressed back to the centre of our position from all sides. The Germans had machine guns trained on the parapet, which frustrated every endeavour on the part of our men to go along the top and attack the bombers with the bayonet. Attempts to call up artillery barrage by power buzzer and SOS flares failed. 
the buzzer being jammed by the Germans and the flares apparently not being observed. So by now the writing is on the wall. The initial German counterattacks were rapid attempts to remove the Australians before they could establish themselves. Having failed in those attempts, they prepared a coordinated attack, hitting the Australians from all sides. The Australians were running out of ammunition, being squeezed into a smaller and smaller area, and no artillery support was coming in. Leaving the trench would expose them to accurate machine gun fire, stay, and they'd eventually be overrun. Despite the risks, there was little choice. It was time to go. Except where parties were cut off, the men tried to get back over the open under fearful machine gun and rifle fire, the losses being heavy. Shortly after noon, the position was entirely evacuated. And so ended the First Battle of Bullecourt. The 13th Battalion alone suffered 510 casualties, mostly killed. Overall, Australian units lost over 3,000 troops killed or wounded. Durant finished his report with his opinion on why the battle failed. The failure of the tanks was the primary cause of our failure to carry out our original plan. They were knocked out by an anti-tank gun situated on the west side of Rhinecourt at a range of about 600 yards. This gun was right in the open, shooting over open sights. No tank reached the second objective and only one, perhaps two, crossed the first objective. Our men put the anti-tank gun out of action with machine gun fire from the second objective, but by this time it was too late to save the tanks. The fact that our artillery was slow in putting a barrage on Rhinecourt resulted in the bombing attacks being pressed with, with great vigour. Also, the gap between the 4th and the 12th Brigades gave the Germans a great advantage. We did not have enough hand grenades or rifle grenades. Ground flares were lit at 8am. I cannot understand why the RFC thought we were in Rhinecourt. Charles Bean, the official historian, probably put it the best. Such success as the Australians achieved had been won by troops persisting through sheer quality of their metal in the face of errors. Over the following two to three weeks, a relative calm settled over the Bullcourt front, but it wasn't to last long. Neville's French offensive had failed to achieve the grand aims their general had envisaged. So with all the logic and reason we've come to expect from World War I generals, Neville wanted to have another crack at it, and the British decided they'd have another crack at the Hindenburg line. And so the Australians were ordered to have another crack at Bullcourt. It really does make you think of General Melchett from Blackadder Goes Forth when he says, If nothing else works, a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face will see us through. Unbelievable. The task was given to the 2nd Australian Division, with a British division on their northern flank and a Canadian division to the north of the British. Once again, during the night of the 4th and 5th of May, Australian troops moved forward to their jumping-off positions. By comparison to 1st Bull Corps, the initial advance went reasonably well, probably something to do with receiving supporting artillery. The left flank, closest to the village of Bullcourt, was held up by heavy machine gun fire with reports that the leading waves of the 25th Battalion had been annihilated. The centre and right brigades advanced well and the order was given that any further attacks would need to be launched from the south to prevent any repeat of the carnage dished out to the 25th. According to the 6th Brigade Operation Report, with the artillery and machine gun barrage the advance of the southern battalions commenced in good order. A German counter-battery was unleashed However, it only affected the last waves and the two objectives were achieved within a relatively short period. Unfortunately, the British division to their north encountered stronger resistance. They attacked directly in front of the village and faced the full force of the intense fire which had decimated the 25th Battalion. On that first day of the battle, the English were unable to take their objectives. This meant that the Australians had pushed a deep salient into the German lines, shaped roughly like a mushroom with a single communication trench reaching from the mushroom back to the support trenches. The rest of that day was spent consolidating the gains and beating off localised counter-attacks. 
Preparations were made to extend the front on the next day. All in all, from the Australian point of view, it had been mostly successful, at least by Western Front standards. The following day, in an attempt to knock out some of the defences which had stopped the advance directly in front of Bulgore, the Australians pushed north from the position towards the village. Obviously, this made them the target of those very defences, and heavy fighting broke out with the Australians slowly making progress, but at a heavy price. The 1st Division relieved the 2nd and continued the push over the following days. On 6th May, the Germans attacked after an 18-hour bombardment, and the 1st Division put up a strong defence. It was noted in the subsequent report that the Germans were able to throw their stick grenades further than the Australians could throw their Mills bombs. This obviously made things difficult for the defenders, but they were able to hold their ground and the attackers faded away. The 5th Division was then put in to relieve the now battered 1st Division. The British were finally able to seize the village of Bulcourt, and after one final counterattack on the 15th of May, the Germans finally decided to relinquish that part of the Hindenburg Line. With the position finally secured, the depleted 5th Division was relieved and all Australian units were withdrawn to recover. So let's just take a moment to delve into what is going on over this time. I stated that preparations were made overnight to extend the line and they pushed forward the next day. It sounds almost like they had a bit of a break after the initial assault, tidied things up a bit, beat off the occasional attack and then, nicely rested, moved on the next day. Obviously this is not the case. Keep in mind, they've only taken a portion of the German trench, meaning that either side of the bit they've captured is the rest of the German trench, complete with German troops. Often, all that was separating them was a pile of whatever was at a hand that could be thrown into the trench to build a barrier. That could be wooden boxes, bits of trench material, sandbags, strands of wire, or even dead bodies. While consolidating that precarious position, they were constantly subjected to sniper fire, bombing raids, and mortar fire. There was no time for a quiet snooze, and so from the 4th of May to when they were finally relieved during the 6th of May, they had no sleep. Under those conditions, it's little surprise that a whole division of men was worn down and worn out in just a few days. Similarly, the 1st Division which relieved them was itself worn down and worn out in just a few days and needed to be replaced by the 5th Division. Ordinarily, a division consists of about 10,000 men, give or take. But factoring in losses sustained up to that point, it would be fair to say maybe they were each at about 7,000 men, maybe less at the time of Bullcourt. So to wear down a body of men of that size in a few days, only to have their relief worn out in a similar time frame, gives an idea of how much of a grinding machine that battle was. As a kind of side note, if you want to see a good description of what it was like for the average soldier holding a newly captured position, I recommend you read Some Mud by E.P.F. Lynch. Lynch was that average soldier and wrote the book in the first person covering his experiences from leaving Australia in 1916 to the end of the war. In one chapter he describes the attack at Messines a few months after Bullcourt, but does it without hyperbole and just describes what happened as, one after the other, he loses mates until he himself is wounded. It's a great book, I reckon everyone should read it. The second battle of Bullcourt was finally over and the Anzacs had suffered a further 7,000 casualties. And what is achieved with the cost of 3,000 casualties from the 1st Bull Corps and 7,000 from 2nd Bull Corps, you may well ask? What advantage did the Allies gain? The front line was advanced about one kilometre. That's it. You could be forgiven for thinking that such a poorly conceived battle plan would have had some negative impact for General Goff's career. But no, he retained his leadership of the 5th Army, and more importantly, he retained the confidence of Haig. He was a thruster after all. He was still in command when the German Spring Offensive of 1918 fell upon his 5th Army, which all but disintegrated. General Birdwood sent a dispatch to the media praising the troops' performance at Bullcourt. 
He stated, I really think that the behaviour of the men in this last fighting has shown up even better than ever before, for they have been magnificent. It has called for the most enormous amount of determination and courage to hang on night and day with ever-recurring casualties, and I do not think that any other troops in the world could have surpassed them. That may be true, but the last word on the two battles of Bullcore must go to Charles Bean. Quote, Bullcore, more than any other battle, shook the confidence of Australian soldiers in the capacity of the British command. The errors, especially on April 10th and 11th, were obvious to almost everyone, and 2nd Bullcourt was, in some ways, the stoutest achievement of the Australian soldier in France. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Mm-hmm.